I think I told you last week, and I'll tell you again this week, um, it's an honor and a privilege to meet in this redeemed garage with you. Uh, I love it. It's the coolest thing God's ever let me do. Karen and I have been doing it for 13 years, meeting with internationals from all over the world, uh, sharing the glory of Jesus Christ. Um, It is the pinnacle of my life. You may or may not understand that. but it is, and uh, thank you for being with us, and uh, yeah, you know, I'd preach if there was nobody here, I'd still preach, uh, just for the fun of it, right? But it is, it is cool that people are here. Um, not very many people, but you know, that's okay. Um, that's okay. That's, that's good. So, I was going to move on. I promised the young adults uh, Tuesday night that I was going to move on. But I kept hearing from you guys, and as I said earlier, when the Spirit is speaking in the church, you don't leave what you're talking about. You stay on it um, at least one more time, and we'll see what God does from here. Um, We've been talking about some weighty things, uh, some real things, life and death kind of stuff heaven and hell kind of stuff. And um, um, apparently, as I said, God is working in it. It's good to behold the awesome, fearsome, consuming fire God of Scripture. In many churches anymore, you can't find Him. You can find the saccharine Jesus. This is my new term. I used to say cartoon Jesus, and it's a good term. But you can't find the saccharine Jesus, the serapy Jesus, um, you know, is what you get in most churches anymore. But you won't find him here. We, we preach the biblical one. Uh, we find him most interesting and most satisfying and most delightful. I was reading uh, this week just in my readings, and, and I, I came across this verse in Job 25 2. Bildad is speaking to Job and he says, Dominion and awe belong to Him, right? Dominion and awe belong to Jesus Christ. So we will not demote Him. We will not turn Him into some religious icon or caricature of who He says He is. He is an awesome God. He is a fearsome God. He is a consuming fire God and He's coming in judgment. We talked about it last week. And by the movement of the Spirit of God, we will continue this week. As one theologian somewhere said, if you get some sense of how great Jesus is, you will either worship or you will flee. And this is what I've seen in my life as, as a Christian. For, I was converted at at the age of 28, so I've been a Christian for 31 years now. And I've seen this in many lives. You know, you preach the real God, the biblical God, and that some people just can't, they can't leave fast enough. They can't leave the church fast enough, right? Let me get out of here. There's too much heat, right? I don't want to stand in front of that God. I want the saccharine Jesus, the syrupy Jesus, the sugary Jesus. And it all goes back, I was sharing with someone earlier, it all goes back 
to Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 for me. God says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. God is getting Himself up, infinitely up above us, right? As He always does when you go to the Bible. God is infinitely above us. He says, what can you do for me? What could you build for me? Right? And then He goes into this great verse that I've shared with you so many times. But God says, this is the one to whom I look, the one who is humble, the one who is contrite, and the one who trembles at My Word. So listen, it's what we do when we come in here. We're willing to tremble. Amen? If you're not willing to tremble, you probably shouldn't come back to ICM because we're going to look at a great God. A great God. We're going to look at an angry Lamb. Right? The angry Lamb of Revelation. Men running and hiding in holes and crying for the mountains to fall on them because the Lamb is here. Because of the wrath of the Lamb. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Isaiah 66-2, I love this. He says, but there's something I'm looking for. This is God speaking. I'm looking for a person, simple and plain, reverently responding to what I say. And this is what I've heard from some of you in the last few weeks. And actually some people who are listening to the sermons, you know, um, off-site on the podcast. This is coming back to me. People who are hearing God and reverently responding to God. This is what God is always after. Right? In the lives of His people. So, three weeks ago, we talked about Job. And we understand about personal calamity. We understand that God will not be distracted with our personal happiness. He loves us too much. He's going to give us Himself, no matter how much it costs, He's going to give Himself to us. And we realize that Satan's accusation against Job, that he's making the same one against us, which is we only feign love for God because God is good for business. God blesses us. So we feign love for Him. We know that's not true in our lives. We love God because we love God. Amen? (laughs) We don't love God because He's good for business. We love God because we love God. Whether He ever gives us what we want or not, that's not the point. The point is, I want God above every other subordinate want. Right? That's the reality. That's the driving reality of the believer's life. I want God more than anything else. I want God. And if He's going to... If He's going to give Himself to me through great blessing, praise the Lord. If He's going to give Himself to me uh, through great trial, praise the Lord. That's His business. It's not your business. It's not my business. It is God's business. Two weeks ago, we talked about calamity in the world. And we understand as Christians, we're not to be astonished when the day of calamity comes. We're to be astonished every day that it does not come. We have earned our wages Every day we walk this planet is sheer grace, mercy, forbearance, and kindness of God. You've earned your wages. I have earned my wages. Death would be the wages of sin. So in calamity, natural calamity, major calamity, man-made calamity, God is always doing two things. He's always judging. He's always calling to repentance. We talked about that. Two weeks ago, it's what Jesus, it's where Jesus went when they asked him about the calamity, this horrible calamity. 18 people died. What about this? He says, You too will perish unless you repent. It's where God goes. 
He doesn't explain all the minutiae. Right? It's where God goes. Repent. You need to repent. I need to repent. And come to our Creator. Last week we saw that God's righteous intent is to judge rebellious angels and men. He, he says, I did it. He told us last week, I did it. And I'm going to do it again. It's, it, it happened. I judged angels. I judged the whole world. In Noah's day, some theologians estimate 10 million to 100 million people. Listen, you know, all these false teachers and naysayers out in the world who say God will not judge because He's love, they've not read their Bible or they completely dismissed the Bible. As we talked about last week, there's no conflict between the, the holiness and judgment of God and the love and compassion of God. All, that, uh, all of God does all that God does. There's always symmetry in, in all that He does. There's always perfect balance. There'll be no man on the last day saying that's not right. You're not going to say that to God. No man will say that to God. No angel will say that to God. Because it is right. He does that which is right. We saw last week, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, God says, I know how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So God laid it on my heart to continue this conversation, principally because I was hearing from you. And God says it's a good thing. You guys know Romans 11.22, right? It's a command. God says, Behold the kindness and severity of God. God means for us to behold His kindness and God means for us to behold His severity. There's profit in it. For the whole world, particularly for the people of God. As Jonathan Edwards talks about, he says, it is good to behold the dreadful greatness and awful majesty of God. Beloved, God help us if we have some saccharine, cartoon, caricature, icon Jesus. God help us. He's being marketed out there all the time. <laughs> I'm sure the false churches outweigh the true ones by a factor of, I don't know, 10 to 1 maybe, I don't know. The saccharine Jesus! The therapeutic Jesus! Right? Not the Jesus you tremble before! You know, I heard a theologian say one time, you know, the world wants to keep Jesus in the manger, right? <laughs> Just keep Him in there. He's nice and cuddly. He's nice and cute. And listen, we know Jesus is 10 million beautiful things. But what we don't hear enough in the modern church and what you and I don't do enough in the world is tell people the truth. He's coming back in judgment. The Bible is explicit. As I always say to you, you have to decide if you're going to be a Bible-believing Christian or some pretend Christian. You know, there are a lot of people out in the world calling themselves Christians, but they, they, they discount much of this, right? Well, they're not Christians in a biblical sense. They're pretend Christians. They're cartoon Christians. You have to decide what you are. 
So looking at the severity of God, it promotes, this is what I want to say to you. This is what I heard from some of you. It promotes brokenness, humility, contrition, meekness, deference to God, thankfulness to God. It, it promotes awe and quietness and worship and repentance and ultimately joy as we contemplate what we truly deserve as opposed to what we will receive in Christ. We were rebels against God. We earned our wages. We should be in hell yesterday, but we'll never go there. Because He's a great Savior. Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Last week we left off at uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 um, and uh, verse 9. We stopped there and just to kind of bring you up to speed, uh, the balance of chapter 2 is just all about false teachers. Okay, I'm not going to go into that. You can read it yourself. But this is what God says about false teachers. That's why I told you last week I'm not a false teacher. It's a bad thing to be a false teacher. It's a bad thing to tickle your ears. It's a bad thing to tell you myths. I'm not... I'm, I tremble before God. I would never do that. I would rather sell used cars than do that. Right? So, uh, here he says, false teachers, just an overview. God says they're unreasoning beasts. They are stains and blemishes on the church. They are adulterous. They are greedy. They are arrogant. They are vain. They are sensuous. They are corrupt. They are springs without water for whom black darkness has been reserved. So that brings us to 2 Peter chapter 3. You heard the text read. Um, and just by way of review, just a, a quick Overview of the first seven verses of chapter 3. Peter says, I'm writing to stir you up by way of reminder. And I think this is what the Holy Spirit's been doing in the last four weeks or so. He's stirring some of you up by way of reminder. You're remembering the angry Lamb who will come in judgment. And you're remembering what you've been saved from. You're remembering that you don't deserve this at all. You don't deserve to be saved, but you are being saved. It's good for us to remember the kindness and severity of God. It's good, beloved. It's good. It's good. It's important. Verse 2, Peter says, Remember what God has said to you. Actually, he says in the Bible, remember what the prophets said. Remember what Jesus said. What the Son said. Remember what the apostles have said. Remember the Word. Remember the Word. And... In context, the false teachers are, as they have always done, they're speaking against the Word. They're speaking contra, uh, in contradiction to the Word. And Peter is saying, remember what God said. It's why we preach from the Bible in this church. It's why we do Bible study. You're supposed to know the Word. You're supposed to go out there and tell people the Word. Because you're a religious fanatic? No, what did we talk about? Why did Jesus talk more about hell than anybody else in Scripture? We talked about it last week. Why did He do it? He loved them. He warned them. Right? It's what a loving person does. When you see, when you see someone on the wrong path, you, 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 you have to warn them. Even if you lose the relationship, you have to warn them. You know, only a coward would watch somebody walk off the edge of a cliff, knowingly watch them do it when they could have stopped them or warned, at least warned them. It's a definition of a coward. 
in my view. Verses 3 and 4 there uh, of chapter 3. Peter reminds us that the mockers will always be there. The scoffers, the deniers, the, those who ridicule us, right? We, we get that. That's part of being a Christian, right? We understand we're called anti-intellectual. We get that. We, we're called superstitious. Uh, we're called, we're called weak-minded. Can you handle the heat? Is it okay if you get called that in the world? Can you love somebody enough to, to tell them the truth anyway? If you're going to catch all their garbage, can you still... Can you still love them enough? You know, this is what we come down to, beloved. This is what we come down to. So the world mocks. It's what the world does. And did you notice their sophisticated argument? It says, He will not come because He has not come. Well, how sophisticated is that? Right? It's basically what it says there. You heard it read. You heard, you heard Dwayne read it. He, has, he will not come because He has not come. It's a pretty unsophisticated argument. Verse 5 through 7 Peter says, God has destroyed the world by water, but the next judgment will be by fire. I love the old King James translation of verse 5. The mockers are willingly ignorant. Okay? You get that? It's always important to note this about mankind. It's not, I'm sharing with someone right now, it's not that men don't know, it's that they do know. It's, it's that they do know. Romans chapter 1. They do know. They do know and they reject the biblical Christ. For a host of, for myriad reasons, there are myriad reasons people reject Christ. The fundamental one is, I'll have no God over me. That's the fundamental reason. Even if they have some false God. I'll have no God over me. This is the fundamental argument against Jesus Christ because He is God. So that brings us to our text tonight, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-14. through 14. <clears throat> And I thought I would talk about it in this way, or at least introduce it in this way. Um, Thursday was, was uh, our wedding anniversary, so we always go downtown, right? And uh, it was so beautiful this week, wasn't it? Beautiful downtown, just hanging out, walking the streets and... I couldn't believe it. I was going to take care of this really nice place, right? She said, well, let's go, let's go to that place where that makes good hamburgers. I said, man, it was so cool. A good cheeseburger right in the middle of Milan. I forget the name of the place, but uh, it's amazing. If you're in the market, let me know. I'll find out the name of the place. But anyway, when Karen and I are at Milan, invariably shopping starts to happen. And so what I do, because I'm not really interested, is I'll, lean on, I'll, I'll just sit out, stand outside. I lean on the wall. If it's a pretty day, I lean against the wall, and I watch people walk by. This is what I do. So, I'm watching people walk by, and I, I don't just watch them, I think. I think, I wonder what they're about. I wonder what they think. I wonder what they hope. I wonder what they dream. I wonder what drives them and what motivates them. I wonder if they have a clue what their purpose is. I wonder if they even think about having some purpose, some transcendent purpose. I wonder if they think about spiritual reality at all. And Thursday I was thinking that, that last week's sermon was echoing in my head and the Holy Spirit was starting to put this week's sermon together. And I'm wondering, do they know? Do they know the peril they're in? How many people walking past me know? If they are not in Christ, 
Judgment is going to fall. I wondered if they knew anything about the kindness and severity of God. I wondered if they were just following the herd, wasting their 82.94 years. I looked it up, Fede. Your average Italian, 82.94 years. Four years longer than Americans. Too much sugar in my diet, I think. That's the problem. So, I think a lot of people go through life kind of brain dead, uh, kind of brain numb, dealing with the, the minutia in front of them and not ever dealing with the ultimate questions. I think this happens to a lot of people. Wrong about every last thing that really matters. They live in a delusion. We could use the word illusion. We could use the word hallucination. They've never dealt with ultimate and real questions. And we need to be in a position to say without a relationship with Jesus Christ, everything's wrong in your life. Every last thing's wrong if you do not know Christ. Jesus said it three times. It was in the Scriptures. recorded three times. Three different Gospels. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What profit is there? Obviously, the answer is there is no profit. There is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in the way of death. And I'm watching these people walk by. And I'm wondering how many of them, how many of them think like this and know this? How many of them are clueless about this? How many of them are just, you know, the majority? I'll have no God over me. I'll do whatever I please, whenever I please. I'll have no God over me. Which is the confession of most of mankind. When I was in seminary, I had a professor and he had this big picture on the wall, right? And there was a line of people as far back into the background as you could see. And they all were carrying a bunch of stuff, right? And as they walked into the foreground, you could see they're just walking off the, off the edge of a a cliff and into the abyss of hell. And they're just looking at the person in front of them and they have all their stuff and they're just walking off the abyss. They never even look down. They're looking, they're just looking at the next one in front of them, right? It's this herd mentality. I'm just going to follow the herd right over the cliff. That image has never left my mind. It's a powerful image of what mankind is and how mankind lives mindlessly stepping off into hell with a handful of garbage. So in our text tonight, Peter is revealing both the kindness and severity of God. First, God's kindness in His patience, verse 8 and 9. And then, God's severity in His judgment, verses 10, 11, and 12. So let me read verse 8 to you. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, we know the mockers are saying, where's this promise of Him coming? Where's this judgment? It's never going to happen. You know? So the mockers are mocking. The false teachers are teaching. And Peter says, I like what he says. He says, this fact. He says this one fact. Don't let it escape your notice. 
that to the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Okay, let's do the math. Um, let's assume that Christ was crucified uh, 30 A.D. How long has it been? On God's timetable, it's been 1.987 years. God, Jesus has only been gone two days if we factor in the way God counts or can count days. One day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. This is the fact. <laughs> Peter says this is a fact. God's outside time. He transcends time. He's beyond time. He's above time. Time is nothing to God. Is what Peter is saying. And I just want to dwell on this moment for, or this, this truth just for a moment. This transcendent, eternal, uncreated, unbegun God. It's important that we think about this. I'm going to give you a lot of verses here real quick. I'm not going to give you the, 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 the reference. If you want it, email me. I'll send you my notes. This is what the, this is what the Bible says about, about God's nature. He is everlasting to everlasting. He is eternal. He is the first and the last. He is the everlasting God. The eternal, immortal Invisible, only God who alone possesses immortality. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the Ancient of Days. He's the Eternal Father. He will endure forever. The number of His years cannot be discovered. This is who God is. Don't mock God. <laughs> He's not on your timetable. You're not His counselor. You don't get to tell God how to run the cosmos. And you don't get to dictate to God when it would be good for Him to come back and do His thing. God is on God's timetable. It's one thing the Lord is saying to the mockers here. He not only engulfs time, He engulfs a billion eternities. This is our God. I was sharing with someone earlier, don't you ever stay in a church that preaches some puny, pathetic God. You know you're in a false church when somebody's preaching some puny, pathetic, effeminate deity. You know this is not the church of Jesus Christ. You need to flee that church if you should find yourself there. So God is not on man's clock. We are on His clock. Hebrews 10.37 says it perfectly. For yet in a very little while, He who is coming will come and not delay. He will come. Judgment's coming. The angry Lamb is coming. It's been written. It's been foretold. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to Repentance. Peter's rebuttal here to the mockers is, is uh, regarding God's delay in judgment. It's an argument from God's character. The first argument was from God's nature. He's eternal. The second argument is from God's character. He's patient. Praise God. Amen? He's patient. You know, this is what mockers should learn. He's a patient God. It's not that He's not keeping His promise to return. He's a patient God that you might repent. Just a few quick verses. 
The Bible says the Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. Many times you see, you see mercy expressed as loving kindness. But, oh God, our God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. The Lord is full of compassion. He is slow to anger. The King James Version translation of Romans 5.15.5 says uh, that God is called the God of patience. And I love what it says. The Bible says about God's mercy, right? I'll give you these texts if you want them. Email me. It is, His mercy is, the Bible says, it's great. It's tender. It's abundant. It's from everlasting to everlasting. And His mercies are all over His works. You know, you either believe in the biblical God or you have some cartoon. If you don't know what God says about Himself, the best gift I can give to you is start to study it immediately. God will change your life. God will change your life. He'll change the way you live. If you'll learn who He is, who He says He is. So, it's not because Jesus is indifferent or He's lost interest or He's become distracted that He hasn't returned. Jesus hasn't returned because He's patient and He's long-suffering and He's slow to anger. And we've used this text three times in the last four messages. This will be the third or fourth. It doesn't matter. I don't care about these things. Um, but it's, I know it's come up at least in several previous sermons. And I want you to listen to it again. I want you to listen to Romans 2, 4 and 5. Listen to it one more time. Who knows, maybe it'll come up again next week. And I venture to say there's more than one in this room. And again, I don't know all of you, but there's probably more than one in this room who falls into Romans 2, 4, and 5. Have you thought lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Do you not know that God's grace and mercy is being showered upon you every nanosecond of your existence? And the Bible says, do you think lightly about it? Do you think God owes it to you? We've talked about it many times. God owes you nothing but justice. Nothing but justice. It's the only thing He owes any man. Do you think lightly about the kindness and tolerance and patience of God? If you do, Paul says, if you do, well, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, you know, Paul loved people. He wrote real stuff. <laughs> you know, this is not happy church and saccharine Jesus. This is real stuff. Are you thinking lightly about the kindness of God in your life? Paul is lovingly calling us to repent. He said, man, you take for granted all that God is doing in your life. You are what all God is doing in your life, you're storing up wrath for yourself. If you're not in Christ. So God is patient. He's merciful. Even to mockers, He's merciful. He is holy and is, is just. We talked about this last week and I've already mentioned it, but I do want to say it again. There's a divine symmetry in all that God does. 
you know, again, the universalist or the false teacher, he'll tell you, well, God can't judge and he can't send anyone to hell because he's a God of love. Well, we know that that's simply false. If we actually have any biblical knowledge at all, we know that that's false. That you have to, you have to excise huge swaths of Scripture from the Bible or ignore them for that to be a proper assertion. God's justice is expressed in perfect symmetry with His mercy. God's compassion is expressed in perfect symmetry with His anger. God's wrath is expressed in perfect symmetry with His love. Some mistakenly try to build a universalist theology out of verse 9 saying that because God does not wish for any to perish, none will. Again, you have to ignore huge portions of Scripture to, to buy into that. And saying that because God wishes for all to come to repentance, all will. Again, to buy into that, you have to ignore huge portions of the Bible. The biblically literate Christian, we understand the sound interpretation for no other reason in that, again, the Bible interprets the Bible. You, this is why you know, false teachers, they take one verse out of context and they build a, they build a denomination out of it. The Bible interprets the Bible. There's a theological dust up here over verse 9. Um, in context, who is God patient toward? I'd have two comments on that. It, it's clear if you, if you can just let language be language and words mean what, the, what, what, what words mean and you have some sense of what context is, he's talking about the elect. He's talking about, he's talking about true believers. Verse 8. Verse 1 of this chapter, the Beloved. Verse 14, verse 7, the Beloved. Chapter 2, uh, uh, pardon me, 2 Peter 1, 1 even, talks about to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Peter's clearly talking to believers. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit equates God's patience to salvation. So some you know, dislike this clear assertion on theological grounds. But you know that's you don't have that luxury. What do the words mean? I mean, you can like it or not like it, but you have to have integrity with the Bible. You can say, "Well, I don't like it, so I ignore that," or you can say, "That's a hard teaching for me, but I will." Oh, Isaiah sixty-six two. I will be humble. I will be contrite. I will be teachable. I will tremble if I have to. So, the Lord's talking about the elect here. But there's also another truth. We see God's dispositional will here. We've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks. What is God's dispositional will toward all men? Ezekiel 33.11 As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die as I said to you in the email this week, God says, here I am. Why then will you die? Here I am. I'm a Savior. I'm a saving God. Why then will you die? I say it to every one of you. I don't know how many of you are truly converted. I have no idea. You know, people ask me, do you think I'm a Christian, Jim? I say, I have no idea. You need to ask God. <laughs> you need to ask the Spirit of God. I have no idea if you're a Christian. How can I see your heart? I think we talked about it Tuesday night. A young adult Bible study. I can't see your heart. Every disciple knew G Judas was real. They all would have probably gone to their death believing Judas was real. Judas was not real. He did not love Jesus Christ preeminently. He did not. 
And I shared this with you last week. Jesus, the dispositional words of Jesus in Matthew 23, 37. You know, He's praying for Jerusalem. He says, oh man, I, I would gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are unwilling. I'm, I'm clear on what verse 9 is about. It's about the elect. But we're also seeing the dispositional will of God. You know, any man who would come, they would be received. God would receive them. There's a lot of theology there. And we don't have time to develop it. Verse 10. So we come to the dissolution or the consummation of the age. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord is a technical phrase. It's not a 24-hour period. It's uh, if you actually believe in the literal uh, millennium, which, which some of us might and some of us might not. Uh, there are good arguments on both sides. Uh, that, that this, this, this period lasts a thousand plus years. The day of the Lord. So it's, a, it's an epic. It's an era. It's a period it's a, that encompasses all the end time prophecies. This is what's being said here. So the day of the Lord will come. God says, it will come. It will come. How will it come? You tell me. What does the text say? It will come what? There's going to be skywriting and there's going to be a bulletin, emergency bulletin on the television and everybody will be... No, what does it say? He will come like a thief. So how does a thief come? You never expect it. You never expect it. So He will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The angry Lamb is returning in judgment. God's patience will be exhausted and His wrath will be vented. It's called the day of the Lord. The Old Testament is replete with descriptions of the day of the Lord. Uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. One time I had to preach through Job and uh, I was stunned. Uh, go read the book of Job if you want to be humbled. Um, it talks about the day of the Lord. There will be wailing, mourning, weeping, ruin, destruction, lamenting, gloom, des desolation, trembling, darkness, and anguish. It's often called the day of doom and vengeance. Jim, you say, Jim, I'll be glad when you get off this series. Well, um, I'm happy to move on, beloved. But you know what? He tells me <laughs> what to preach next, right? And as I confessed Tuesday night, I told the young adults I'm ready to move on, but God had another plan. You know what Paul tells the Thessalonians? The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Those, uh, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Hey, I can't disrespect you. I think I told you last week. I can't disrespect you enough to not share that with you. Some of you don't know Christ. Some of you have been stubborn. Some of you have been taking the blessings of God for granted. You need to come. And some of you have friends in your life and family members in your life and you need to share the truth with them. Whatever it costs, whatever it costs, share the truth with them. 
It's what real Christians do. So Jesus comes like a thief unexpectedly. And did you notice the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. We basically get uh, the same thing said in verse 12. I'll drop down and read the last half of verse 12. The heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Nobody knows what this means, although what I think it means is that um, Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is upholding all things according to the Word of His power, right? I think He just lets go of them, right? He's upholding all things by the Word of His power. You know, the weak force, the gravitational force, the electromagnetic force, the strong force, quantum mechanics, protons, neutrons, electrons, quarks, whatever. He's just going to let it go. And it's all going to implode. Probably something like a nuclear reaction. Nobody really knows. But God spoke the cosmos into existence and He will speak it out of existence. And we know as the text tells us, we are looking for the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 11 and 12. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? I think this is why God had me preach this text tonight. After these four sermons uh, that we've been talking about, these weighty things, including the judgment of God, the implication is, the question for you is, then what should you be like? Right? If, if this is the Word of God, how should you live? How should you live? How should you speak? I think this is the reason that God has me preaching this tonight. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, verse 11, Since everything here today might be gone tomorrow, do you see how essential it is that you live a holy life? This is not a question. Um, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Verse 12, looking for the hastening and coming of the day of God on account of that which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense fire. This is not a question. This is an exclamation. You don't find a question mark in the text. God's saying, this is how you should live, right? Holy! Of course you should live holy. Of course you should. You call yourself a Christian. You belong to God incarnate. Of course you should be holy. We understand none of us achieve perfection, but we are, we are pressing in. We are grinding on it. We are grinding the sin out of our life as God enables us through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. We're grinding all that sin out. We hate it. Right? We hate the sin. One way you can know you're a true believer, you will hate your sin. If you don't hate your sin, you're not converted. Go read 1 John. You're maybe religious, but if you can tolerate your own sin, you've got huge problems. This is an exhortation. You should be a holy people. We are, what does God say, seven times? I think it's seven times. I looked it up. Yeah, seven times in the King James Version. You're a peculiar people. I want to ask you, how peculiar are you out there? How peculiar are you out there? Are you really an alien? Are you really an exile? Will you love people enough to tell them? We need to be Hebrews 11 men and women 
By faith they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. <laughs> you know, the true believer has this appetite for the things of God and for eternity, right? We just have this appetite for it. Really, nothing, really, it's difficult for anything in the world to distract us anymore, right? Of course, I'm a lot older than you. I've been down the road a few times. I've been around the block a couple of times. Um, and I've tasted most of what some of you maybe have not yet tasted. And let me just tell you honestly, it's garbage compared to Jesus Christ, okay? It's all garbage. I know Satan says it's good and it's fun and it's pleasurable. And, you know, it might be pleasurable, but listen, sin will always, it'll always, uh, it'll always take more than it gives. It'll always cost more than it gives. So God, God says, I won't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed to be called their God. They desire me and my home. They desire a better country, a heavenly one. And you guys know 1 John 3.3 and 1 John 2.28. This is a combination of those two verses. This is beautiful. Everyone, everyone who has this hope, this hope of Jesus coming, fixes on Him, purifies Himself, that we may have confidence and not shrink away at His coming, right? We have Our hope is in Christ, and because our hope is in Christ, we're always in this perpetual process of sanctification, so we will have confidence and we will not shrink back when the Lamb shows up. Right? It's beautiful. And it says, we are looking for and hastening the day, uh, pardon me, the, the coming of the day of the Lord. What does it mean, hastening? We eagerly desire. I just want to ask you, is that real for you? Do you eagerly desire the coming of Christ? Are you look? You know, you usually walk where you're looking, right? What are you looking at? Are you looking at the world? Are you looking at Christ? You know, your feet are going to follow your eyes. It's just the reality. So I want to ask you, what are you looking at? I just want to make a distinction. Verse 12 talks about the day of God as opposed to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the emphasis there is judgment for unbelievers. The day of God, the emphasis there is the coming new heavens and earth for believers. That's the difference. I just wanted to make that distinction for you. Let's finish up. Verse 13. But according to His promise, we are... Oh, there it is again. We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you, oh, look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. Again, your feet will follow your eyes. What are you looking at? What are you looking at? So I love this exhortation from God. He's basically saying if we really believe Him, we will be walking with Him. If we really believe it, we will incarnate it. You know, I love 1 John. It's one of the most fundamental books in the Bible. It's like 1 John says, don't tell me you're a Christian and walk like the world. It's like this is the exclamation of John. Don't tell me that! Don't tell me that! It can't be true! You can't know Christ and love the world. It's impossible. It's really what John is saying. Don't tell me that! And stop saying you're a Christian in the world and live like the world. You're bringing God down. You're bringing God down.
So if we really believe we're peculiar people, if we believe we're aliens and exiles, if we believe this world is passing away and everything in it, if we believe Jesus Christ is the Creator, uh, the Savior, and the returning Sovereign King, if we believe Jesus Christ is our greatest possible joy and supreme treasure, if we really believe to live as Christ, to die as gain, it will be visible in your life. If it's real on the inside, it spills out. This is the way I say it all the time. It just will spill out into your marriage. It spills out into your work. It spills out at the university. It spills out the, at the aperitivo. It spills out when you're surfing the internet by yourself. It spills out, right? It just spills out. This love for God, this relationship with God, this intimacy with God. So we are peculiar people. We know who matters. We know why He matters. We know Jesus is better than anything this world can give and Jesus is better than anything death can take. So I'll end like this. Are, you, are your eyes on Jesus? Are you like that guy in, my, in, in my, the painting that was hanging on the, my seminary professor's wall? Are you just looking at some other human being and following the herd? Where are your eyes? What are you looking at? You know, when you roll out of bed, what do you look at? Your feet will follow what you look at. What are you looking at? These last few verses are, well, yeah, the last couple, three verses, Peter begins to talk about heaven. <laughs> That's where we're going, right? Heaven. Back to paradise, right? Back to paradise. John Piper's right. Human life is all about Jesus. Some of you don't know that yet. I will say, if you don't know that human life is all about Jesus, and I'm talking about every aspect of your life, it's all about Jesus. If you don't know that yet, you're in my seminary professor's picture. You're, you're, you're walking, you're, you're about to walk off into the abyss. May not be today. Maybe 80 years. but you'll wake up in the abyss. It is all about Jesus Christ. Whether you like it or not, it's okay. You don't like it? Eat, drink, and be merry. God gives you your will. Go exercise your will. But when you come in here, I'm going to love you enough to warn you that the Lamb is coming. The Lamb is coming. And He will judge and damn His enemies. You say, Jim, I don't like this message. Okay, well, if you don't like the Bible, don't come back. I, I want you to come back. <laughs> I love when you come. But if you don't like the Bible, there's no point in coming back here. This is what we do. It's what we do, beloved. I can't disrespect you that much to stand up here and do myths and tickle your ears. Jesus is coming. The Lamb is coming. Revelation 22, 12-13. Behold, I am coming quickly and My reward is with Me to render to every man according to what He has done. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and I am the end. So I just end with this. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct 
and godliness. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you love us this way. We thank you that you respect us this way. We thank you that you speak truth even when it's hard to hear. We thank you for the warning. And for those of us who are Christians in here tonight, not just churchgoers, but Christians, disciples, lovers of God, we rejoice and give thanks. Wrath, infinite and eternal wrath should land on us, but it will not. It landed on our beautiful Lamb of God. Thank You, Father, that You have loved us in this breathtaking way. Thank You that You have delivered us in this astonishing way. Forgive us, Father, when we think or don't think at all and don't rejoice at all and don't worship at all about who You are and what You've done in Christ Jesus. Forgive us, Father. May we all repent tonight. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for our salvation. We pray this in His matchless name. The name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and I'll just read a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. I'm always at the end of the email address. I'm at the end of the cell phone number. If you have any questions or concerns um, about the message tonight, anything in the message, I'm always happy to speak to you. I, don't, I can't promise that I can answer every question you have, but I'll give it my best shot. And um, so, yeah, God bless. Have a great week. Remember, behold the kindness and severity of God. It's His commandment. God bless. Go in peace. Have a great week.